Hello, my name's Andrew Skipper. I'm head of the Africa practice at Hogan Lovells, and I have wide-ranging Africa experience from business to art and culture. I'm co-vice chair of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art, and currently co-chair of the UK government's Africa Investors Group. This is the fifth series of the A Perspective podcast, in which I've been having conversations with some of Africa's top business minds and investors alongside key cultural influences. People are deeply committed to building on the continent and spreading the word and the vision of it. They're certainly pulling no punches about the problems, but they're spotting and delivering on enormous opportunities. So today I'm delighted to turn to Professor Nick Benedal. Nick is a prof professor of strategic leadership at the University of Pretoria's Gordon Institute of Business Science, known as Gibbs. He holds a PhD from the University of Washington in Seattle, where he was a Boeing scholar, an MBA from the University of Cape Town, and a Bachelor of Commerce degree from Rose University. After an initial career in mining and manufacturing sectors, including a period as general manager, Nick has invested the last 30 years of his career in business education. His experience in the field of management education includes being the founder director of Gibbs, where he used to be dean and the Sassol chair of strategic management. The school has rapidly established itself as a leading business school in South Africa, with a strong focus on partnering with leading South African corporates and providing a high level of local and international business education. It's been ranked as one of the top 40 global executive education providers by the London Financial Times. Nick's been described to me recently by a friend as an internally optimistic pragmatist who understands how business can work with government to deliver a better future in South Africa. And it's a pleasure to be able to discuss with this with him today. So I'm delighted to be able to welcome you, Nick, to this discussion. Great. To Thanks very you. much, Andrew. And it's a pleasure for me to be with you and those it's who listen to this podcast. Yeah. So, so Nick, with all the issues of the past few years culminating in the pandemic and with the recent rioting and looting in South Africa, reinforcing what's possibly a plague rather than a pandemic of unemployment, especially amongst the young, I'm keen to hear a, a positive, constructive analysis, but realistic narrative of the current situation. So from your point of view, what's wrong and how can it be fixed? Well, Andrew, I think many of the challenges that we face at the moment are structural and, and very mm. long-term, and I might touch on those. And, of course, these, they've been exacerbated by what's happened with COVID, yeah. uh, the insurrection in KwaZulu-Natal, which fortunately seems to have died down now, um, although one never knows when it might come back in one or other form. But the underlying features of South Africa are long-term, as, as, as we all know. It, it had a particular form of capitalism that was uh, imperial or colonial in nature. That produced a very strong private sector dominated by mining companies. And, of course, manufacturing and retailing and finance became strengths in the South African economy for many, many decades, along with agriculture. Um, those are their long-term structural features, however, of course, that emerge from the form of our politics, which was changed dramatically in 1994. I think from 94 for about 15 years or so, South Africa was seen by many as a poster child of what's possible, uh, both politically and morally and in terms of reconciliation. But things began to go adrift and they sharpened in their driftness under the Zuma administration, <laughs> where a level of maladministration, poor strategy and corruption 
found its way into the heart of government. And that has been a, a now for us a, a surface long-term problem. So while South Africa has, has many upside features, it's got some not insignificant challenges that emerge from that long period of history before liberation and post-liberation. The good news is it's a constitutional democracy, and we keep having this message reinforced by the actions of the judiciary, by the free media we enjoy, by the ability of people to form political parties and, and put their ticket into the game. So it is in a mixed mode at the moment, especially after COVID had such a devastating impact on our economy. And as you said, it suffers from the structural plague of long-term unemployment. So let me start with those as some broad strategic mm. comments. That's that's really interesting. Um, a lot of this goes down, I mean, in, in other African countries as well. My friends often now advise me that as long as you avoid doing any business at all with the government and stick with the private sector, you're going to be okay. But surely that isn't a model which can work for future stable prosperity. I mean, where do you see the future for the private and public sectors working together in South Africa? Well, that's a very what, important what, question. And, and, and what do they yeah. need to learn from each other? That's a very important question. Of course, the South African political economy is different in a number of, of critical ways than many other post-colonial societies. Uh, the settlers are here and they are citizens and they exercise their economic and political rights. And that changes the nature of our politics to some degree, but certainly the structure of our economy where white South Africans still hold what we used to call the commanding heights. For an outsider looking at investment here, there's some very good quality firms with which to do business. And of course, we're very fortunate by far to have the most multinationals in the African continent operating in South Africa, normally with their head office here. That's a mm. big plus for our economy. Yeah. So there are many private sector, not directly related investment uh, zones for foreign investors. But if you are South African, or if you're a multinational that has a, a, an investment on the horizon that requires cooperation with government, which most of it does these days, yeah. then inevitably you're going to be drawn into the complexities of transformation, of affirmative action, of the legislative environment, the investment criteria, which are aimed at transformation. And these have a mixed bag of outcomes. Sometimes they work and sometimes, I'm afraid, they're a bit toxic. Uh, but there's no question that in South Africa itself, when we look at its major companies, the partnership between business and government is absolutely central. And I'm pleased to say that we've witnessed in the last two years or so a change in climate and there's a level of practical engagement with government, which was very much not the case in the prior administration. And what sort of examples can you give me of that? Because I think that um, it's something which, as I say, I constantly hear the need for private and public sector to work together to deliver something which is long-term sustainable. So what, what examples can you, can you give? Of, I mean, I think, I think you've been doing things in this space yourself, haven't you? And a long-term example here would be our auto industry. We're yeah. not an insignificant exporter of, of cars. And we've been that way for 40 years or more, partly and importantly due to subsidies from government. And so many, many decades ago, the state 
the then state, decided that it would grant certain tax benefits and so on to the auto industry because South Africa had quite a lively auto market, internal market. And so we built up this auto sector with many of the biggest brands operating plants here. So that's an example of a, of a long-term partnership. And of course, the mining industry itself has had many forms of interaction between the state and mining companies to regulate labor matters, unions, uh, wages, and so on, but also dealing difficult with difficulty in the last few years on licensing and mining rights and, and so on. Th those are just two examples. In agriculture, there's been this question of land and uh, the question of yeah. ownership of land, which has come up. And in a way, that's gone off the boil a little bit, but it will always be there because it was the land that was taken. And many people feel rightly, I suppose, that it's land that must be restored to original owners. However, the government has been fairly gimlet-eyed about not uh, letting this mess up the commercial agriculture in South Africa, which is extremely productive and very successful and also, again, a major earner of exports. So these partnerships across sectors are the way to look at it rather than just to look at the economy as a whole. That's very interesting. And again, from the outside, looking in, there's a sense somehow that success in South Africa is underpinned by the success of one man at the moment, Cyril Ramaphosa. And from your point of view, is that what are the factors which are going to influence success in that context? Is that, is that a true analysis? Tell me a little bit about, about that and how you see elections going in the next, in the next year or so. Well, uh, let me start with, with the president himself. Mm. You know, he's been around a very long time in our lives, first as a student leader, later as a union builder. He built the National Union of Mine Workers with others then Secretary General of the ANC, then involved heavily in the writing of the Constitution, which has been admired by almost everybody. Then as a business person, and now at first as a deputy president, now as a president. That's a very unusual combination for a president. Mm. He's been exposed to all facets of South African life during the course of his leadership. So I'm an admirer of his like so many. He's a, a, a moral man. He also fortunately is a wealthy man and therefore not dependent as so many African leaders become. And I trace the moral decline of our past president to that fact that he was dependent on support from others with checks attached. This president is not. So he represents a sober-minded incremental approach. Impatient, uh, many are impatient with speed of change. I am too, but one has to then get into the head of the political difficulties he faces within the party of trying to modernize it, trying to get it more focused on investment and economics and moving it out of what became in its liberation era the ideological center point, uh, which is the control of the state uh, of the nation. And unfortunately, that became a dogma of, of this liberation movement uh, which is now having consequences. He has to unscramble that egg, and that is not an easy uh, process, nor is it something that happens quickly. But he's won so many practical, uh, in so many practical arenas, appointing the right people, making many of the right moves, getting infrastructure investment going as we slowly try and turn this ship 
which is not an easy ship to turn given our history. One of the main, going back really to the plague of unemployment, um, without dealing with that, nothing much more can happen, I suspect. And it's a what you might call a trite truth that a badly educated country struggles to deliver growth. And I know that most people say that much of South Africa's education and training suffers from low quality teaching and learning, as well as the inequalities and exclusions at all levels. You're a leading educator. How do you see the role of education in delivering a more secure and prosperous future? for South Africa, and more widely for Africa, actually? So that's a very strategic question. And I think one of the things that COVID has masked is the challenge of getting our education system into the 21st Mm. century. Let me start by saying the public education system under the apartheid regime was was a moral and human disgrace. In the democratic South Africa, there's been significant access and huge amounts of resource have gone into education. Unfortunately, we've not seen the right kind of returns, and so we have a long way to go. I would say our education system is oriented to the 20th, not the 21st century, and that's going to be a long-term challenge. Having said that, though, like in so many areas of this paradoxical and contradictory country, South Africa has really good education at the top end, So some of our top universities and schools are really world-class, whether it's engineering, medicine, business schools, accounting qualifications. They really have been outstanding. And so that's the paradox, is that a system that was built for a privileged few served them extremely well. And the system that was inherited for the vast majority did a great disservice. And as you know, Education systems are notoriously difficult to reform because they are so administrative and sometimes so political as they were in our case. It, it's a challenge everywhere, and I think that the the the, gener- the, the, the direct link between GDP and uh, and literacy is something which people should focus on a little bit more. I think than they do already. Well, it's not um, just it's not just literacy in the yeah. generic sense. Mm. It's it's got to do with the digital economy. You yes. see, the 20th century for South Africa was a mining century. And mm. what really gave us a, a huge advantage, in spite of some of the negative things one can say about mining, is the fact that that capital flow, that injection, that technology, I mean, you might often ask, why does South Africa have such good banks? The answer is mining. Mm. It was the massive capital flows of mining that had to be managed that led to a very good banking sector, which then became a world-class banking sector. If you look at how Eskom operated 40, 50 years ago, serving business in the white community, it was ranked as one of the top power generators in the world. So that heritage was a, for another world, a world that no longer exists, the, the world of manufacturing and mining. Now we have to digitize our economy And we do have a a big services sector with some exceptional services companies. I think of companies like Discovery, some of our insurance companies, Mm. all in the service economy. And many of them have made, if not generated the transition, have come along for the transition. So the problem for education is how you get an old education system to be postmodern and to be far more digital. And that's really where we're lagging. It's, it's interesting you say that because people talk often about the, the leap which Africa can make 
using digital. But if you've got an, I guess, if you have an embedded system, then that's more of a challenge to do that. I wanted to turn really now to South Africa in, in Africa, I think, really, and, and maybe look at the African Union has recently demanded a new paradigm, as they've put it, for Africa post-pandemic. And they're looking at a focus on the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement and the need for putting more added value in Africa for Africa by Africans. Do you see this as making a big difference in terms of intra-Africa trade and value addition? Um, and particularly for South Africa, do you see this as being a good thing? And how can institutions like Gibbs add value in the future? So it's a good question. If you look at, at regions, uh, you could mm -hmm. even take the European Union as a good example, which took really yeah. 40 or 50 years to get into gear. Yes, yes. And the, and the somewhat slower development of the Latin American region as a whole, as a subcontinent, and then look at the Asian region for success and speed, you realize that Africa, partly recovering from colonialism, but partly because it's so many countries that really should be in an economic union that hasn't really come about, that's where the potential lies. That's why the African Free Trade Agreement is so important, mm. is we need to work towards, as you did in Europe from coal and steel through the EEC to the EU, mm. gradually get ourselves into a place where country boundaries in Africa become far less important than network linkages. And so that ecosystems and value chains and sectors can work together. The numbers that cause people to drool are twofold, in my view. One is the demographics. We're 1.3 billion people. I think it's something like 70% of people under the age of 18 in 2040 or so will be African. It's got a very young population. Yes. Uh, so there's an unfulfilled market. And I remember when I had hair, which was a long time ago now, I suppose, <laughs> looking at China, and I remember Nixon talking about one Coca-Cola down every Chinese throat because they just drooled at the numbers. Well, Africa has the same potential. But none of us foresaw what China would achieve in a disciplined and focused way. This hasn't happened here yet. You've had fits and starts. So you've had East Africa probably doing better than other regions, you had Nigeria given the bonanza of oil. You had Ghana off to a good start and then wobble a great deal. And then you've had countries that have really not found a grip on modern life, the DRC, Angola, etc. So South Africa's future, in my view, and this is just my personal view, is absolutely hitched to the fate of the continent. But it operates too often as an island on the continent instead of managing to build these long-term partnerships. And that's where we need to go. And I think that many companies here have realized that in the last 10 or more years. And so we've built in, in, in all sorts of sectors uh, broader investments. But some have not worked, and some companies have come back, and some have abandoned their investments in East and West Africa. But in the long term, it's got to be the space for South Africa because I can't see us out innovating the US or out working the Chinese or the Asians. Our market really is an African market. But that's a long, long business because we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the legislative environment. We don't have the political will because many of the, these countries regard themselves, which they should, as sovereign nations 
and must calculate the benefit of working together. And that vision still has to come in practice. We've always had this pan-African vision, but we've not made it a reality. You, you raised this point before, but so just briefly, maybe, that given that the opportunities are there for to scale and the opportunities are there for, for there for bigger companies, and in theory, South Africa should be in a very strong position, given it has relatively more big businesses than others in Africa. Do you think, I mean, the, the point you make is, I mean, people talk about going out of South Africa into Africa, which shows the, the island mentality to an extent. So are these businesses up to the task long term? Or do they need to change? Well, some of them are and some of them are not. So mm. I think the mentality, if you look at law firms, for example, mm. uh, consulting, uh, mining, you, you can see that the Saffron companies have, have seen this in retailing as well. But it's yeah. hard work because South Africa, in many ways, if you think of its, it, its economic history, is unlike many of these countries. And our people were not deeply exposed to them until very recently. Mm. And so we have a certain way of, you know, but like the way the U.S. looks at Mexico um, as a strange border, we don't always come with the right humility and partnering approach. And, of course, there's a resistance from many of these countries to South Africa doing precisely that because they believe they've been doing fine and they don't need the big brother from the south to come and tell them how to do things. So I've met in the business school world some of that, but I've also met open hands and open arms and people wanting to engage with us to do business. And so we, you know, we've worked at Gibbs on exactly that. We have a Centre for African Management. But it's the long haul. You've got to have a long view about this. Don't expect uh, outcomes in the next three to five years. This is a 20-year view. But I do think, as I said earlier, this is the grand strategy view for South Africa. It has to be a hub, it has to uh, assist, it has to be a constructive partner, um, and it has to then build the kind of networks and linkages that make that happen. And when we have our domestic squabbles, especially when we are anti-foreigners from the rest of the mm. continent and our attitudes to that, uh, that's a great tragedy for South Africans because African citizens are our brothers and sisters and, and we can play a very constructive role. You know, when I fly over Africa at night and look down over the Congo and fly for 30 or 40 minutes without seeing a light, you realize the unbelievable, the Congo should be the Brazil of, of Africa. The, the river itself could power up 400 million homes. This potential is all there if we can just get the political arrangements and the legislative arrangements to work. And that's why the free trade agreement along with the trucks on the freeway and the, and the rail cars and the shipping ports are so important for its future. Just looking back at South Africa, I mean, the, all this is, is predicated really on, a, on South Africa being relatively stable and relatively well invested in, I suspect, in order to be able to work outside. The challenges that South Africa has been facing for some time now, and particularly with KwaZulu-Natal and the like, how, has, how do you see that? Has, has that negatively impacted investor confidence to the extent that you, you expect it to reduce significantly in investment terms? Or do you see this as being a passing a passing phase? Well, it's, it's very hard. What do they say? It's very hard mm. to predict, especially about the future. So it's very difficult to know <laughs> whether this was yeah. symptomatic uh, of an mm. underlying uh, problem 
or whether this is uh, a sort of a one-off kind of uh, flick of the old man's tail, I'm referring to President Zuma. It's very difficult to know that. But the underlying structural unemployment, poverty and inequality are, are really problematic here. So anybody trying to lead this country is faced with the almost impossible task of trying to, on the one hand, create performance in the state and state-owned enterprises, develop an investment program that's attractive domestic and international investors, while at the same time improving the lot of ordinary South Africans. And what we have done is provide uh, social grants, both pre- and post-COVID, and uh, that does act as some form of a buffer, but it's not going to go away. So I hope like so many, that what happened in KwaZulu-Natal was an episode. But one has Mm. to acknowledge that South Africa is a turbulent country with a turbulent past. And I think of its peers around the world, and I say don't expect this to be Belgium. This is a country that's had a very difficult past. And the extraordinary achievement of of coming through that period Mm of colonialism and then apartheid oppression and finding ourselves in the uplands of a constitutional democracy, just that achievement alone is quite remarkable. And I do think the rule of law holds here. It may not be always executed the way it should, but broadly speaking, South Africans should really celebrate the fact that they have rights, political, human, legal rights. They have more and more access and they have the opportunity to make of their lives as best they can. Having said that, of course, there's always these problems, the long shadows of corruption and inefficiency and, and so on, are always there. But it is a frontier society. And if you study the theory of frontiers, that's what happens in the open space. There's a contestation before the system emerges and settles down. And I, I think, you know, we've got to look 50, 60 years ahead before we can say South Africa is likely to be a stable, predictable constitutional democracy. Until then, we're going to be a dynamic, sometimes unstable, but largely stable, I think, because South Africans are conservative by nature. People always see the ANC as a radical and revolutionary organization. It's not at all. It's a really center of the road, quite conservative organization. And South Africans themselves, they're highly religious they're deeply conservative and they don't go for all the sort of, you know, overthrow the regime kind of stuff. They did that to remove white uh, supremacy. But there are not many signs of that. I think the fact that the KwaZulu uh, uprising did not spread is a very good example of why one should have confidence in the spine of South Africa. Most people I spoke to, and I spoke to a wide range of people, felt this was totally inappropriate. And the country learned lessons from this experience. So so finally, um, what's kept you going over the last 18 months when we haven't been traveling and we've been talking on Zooms? And what keeps you passionate about South Africa and the continent and and optimistic? Have you, have you met many um, Zimbabweans? Uh, whether they're white or black, <laughs> they, wherever they live, in the UK, Australia or Zimbabwe, yeah. They retain a kind of hardy optimism because the climate under which for multiple generations South Africans have operated required that kind of hardiness. Uh, 
I'm a, a fifth-generation South African. Even though I lived in six countries before I was 10, I, I've, my home is here. My heart is here. My life's experiences are here. I've been informed, uh, as echoed in that great speech by Tabo and Becky, I am an African, by all the kinds of people that we find here. I've celebrated it all my life. And to find ourselves from the 70s and 80s going to this extraordinary period under Nelson Mandela was a euphoria that you can't walk away from. And realizing that nothing constrains a society. There are no facts that say you absolutely can't do X. Sometimes X is very, very hard to do. But South Africa has achieved some of these things, and it's given life to people like me to say, carry on doing what you're doing. Yes, things get tough at times, but they're extraordinary achievements that you can look back on and say, this is part of our story. Is, is to rise and to have that kind of resilience that makes life worth living. I've lived a lot in America. I know the UK well. I've been to Australia many times. You know, I love Australia. I have family there, but it's very boring compared to being here. <laughs> uh, here life is dramatic, and it makes you lead a different kind of life because there are big risks and big things to do as opposed to swimming in a stable sea where everything has rules and if you cross the streets, the policeman's going to find you. Here, it's a different kind of uh, life. And people who are, don't live here or don't live through those kinds of worlds often tend to, to just look at the downside and say, they did what? And then walk away from the risk. But we don't. We have to live with this risk and, and improve it as as the generation before us did and I'm sure the generation to come will do the same. That was fantastic. Thank you, Nick. And so, Nick Benadell, thank you for being on the A Perspective podcast. It was great to have you with me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Andrew.